In this edition of the podcast, we examine the Chowchak Wing Museum, the University of Sydney's Museum of Art, Science, History and Ancient Cultures. Deputy Director Dr Paul Donnelly talks about the space, the vision, the collection and the challenges of operating in an unpredictable COVID environment. I'm Tim Stackpole and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast as we once again acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is produced and listened to, and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And thank you too to our sponsors, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, the laboratory for professional photographers and exhibition designers who require perfect rendering and colour reproduction of works and their prints. And you can learn more about Pixel Perfect Pro Lab by visiting their website at pixelperfect.com.au. Sydney University's Chowchak Wing Museum brings three powerful collections to a stunning purpose-built space at the university, and the museum was designed to share the University of Sydney's vast collection with a broader community. Combining the university's Nicholson Collection of Antiquities with the Maclay Collection of Natural History, Ethnography, Science and Historic Photography, and the University Art Collection, the Chowchak Wing Museum triples the exhibition space previously available, 70% of the items on display at the moment have not been seen publicly for over 20 years. From ancient Rome, Greece and Egypt to the art of First Nations people and the works of leading contemporary artists, the Chowchak Wing Museum is easily recognised as Sydney's newest centre of cultural and artistic excellence. And we ourselves have now succumbed to the numerous email requests to devote an episode of the podcast to this great new facility. Of course, given the challenge of COVID over the past 20 months or so, It may have been very difficult to enjoy the collection in person. It's a frustration held by art-loving Australians wherever they may live or wish to travel to, and indeed to the folks who work at the museum as well. So let's take you inside the relative short history of the museum and the philosophy of the exhibitions. Some, of course, now can be enjoyed online. The museum's deputy director, Dr Paul Donnelly, works with the curators and broader team in developing the institution's exhibition program. Before this job, he was, for many years, a curator of decorative arts and design at the Powerhouse Museum. It was there that his curatorial responsibilities expanded across many collections, including numismatics, ceramics, furniture and design. Paul's PhD focused on Bronze Age ceramics. He is the co-director of the University of Sydney's Zagora Archaeological Project in Andros, Greece, and is a member of the university's Pella excavation team in Jordan, which, of course, He can't visit at the moment because of current travel restrictions, but he can join us on the podcast right now via Zoom. Paul, thanks for the chat. Great pleasure, Tim. Thank you for having me. I want to come to the fact that this is a great space. When you first walk in to the museum, when you get the chance to do so, you do see this as a, as I say, a great space. But before we get to that, Tell us about the history of the Chowchak Wing Museum and why it is so important, I guess, not just to Sydney University, but to, I guess, the arts and culture and museums in general in Australia. Sure, Tim. Well, um, objects have been used at the University of Sydney since very early on in its inception. So as early as 1860, the then provost, Sir Charles Nicholson, had been around in the 1850s. He'd gone through Egypt and through Greece and Italy acquiring eventually 3,000 objects that he felt could inspire and instruct students in their, in their teaching and, and learning. He thought it was a, a kind of a, 
a physical connection to the old world, if you like. And in terms of the university having such a great collection such as this, do you find that in between the faculties there's competition as to who gets what space and what's going in at what particular time? We, we have um, a very healthy um, discussion with academics. Part of our process of, of exhibitions is a program review group, which includes academics from across the whole of the campus. Um, we want to be as relevant as, as we can, but of course there's the limitations of our own collection. So it's, it's more about a discussion as to what we can provide for them to teach with, um, within the limitations of our, albeit diverse collection, and, and how best they can use it. But they don't actually devise the exhibition program and such like. So, um, so it really is, it's about a conversation between us and them. But that being said, we also have a, a new role. The, the new, ex- new Chowchat Wing Museum has given us whole new facilities and infrastructure, which helps us to really embed collections within teaching and learning. And so uh, we have object-based learning studios, three in total, in addition to a school's education room, and an auditorium, and also a new position of academic engagement curator, which works with academics to try and find how we can help them teach with objects in surprising areas. Given that, I wonder whether you feel at all constrained in a way that you have to tailor some of the collection and the displays that you do to reflect the curriculum at the time in any number of subjects or faculties. Is that the case? No, it really isn't the case at all. I think um, academics generally, they fit in with what we put on display. And I think that most of the strengths of our collection are the, are the nature of the history of the university. And, um, and of course, that's, that's gone hand in hand with the strengths of our academic community. And so archaeology, for example, we've had lots you know, over the past 100 years, we've had really fruitful collaborations with numerous institutions around the world, which has resulted in us having uh, an excellent collection that covers the whole of the Mediterranean region mm. with natural with natural history. The whole Alexander Maclay collection is essentially a really important colonial collection of the origins of taxonomy. When you've got those kinds of collections which have grown with academic um, execution and academic teaching, um, I think they, they there's a natural synergy between those two anyway. With, with new courses, they tend to work with us in finding ways that they can they can use our collections. I just want to ask you a little bit about the, the the collection and what people can expect to see if they haven't been to the museum already. We're talking more than just artifacts here, aren't we? We're not just talking about archaeological content. Are we talking about art as well? Absolutely. So the Chowchatwin Museum is the bringing together of three existing earlier institutions, the Nicholson Museum, which started off in 1860, um, with a collection of um, Egyptian and ancient Greek and South Italian material in the main, and that has since grown from 3,000 objects to over 30,000 objects. Wow. And then by 1890, we had the Maclay Museum opening, which was set up by the Maclay family of Elizabeth Bay House. They, um, they had gained quite a name for themselves in terms of their early research in the taxonomy of natural history, you know, a real enlightenment kind of um, product and, and, uh, and an obsession of the Victorian period. And um, Whilst the early collections were very much an entomological insect collection, over time, the three, the three major Maclays who participated in the formulation of that diversified into ethnography and into, into science and, and mammals and birds and, and, and other parts of, of, of the natural world. And since then, we've got, we've got 60,000 historic photographs added to that collection. 
um, our scientific instruments and scientific models are the products of the evolution of, of different technologies and departments and the inevitable kind of casting of the material. We don't take everything we're given, of course, but, um, but we do pick and choose some amazing equipment that has been used in the past for being able to use um, different equipment of, in, in the scientific arena. And then there's our art collection. And from, and from 1860, Sir Charles Nicholson had conventional flatwork art in his collections amongst the antiquities. And, um, and since then, our collection has grown to 9,000 items, which includes the power collection. And um, the power collection is frequently associated with the MCA, where it was first displayed in, in um, entirety or in, in sections anyway. That, that is the Sydney University collection. And we now have, for the first time, the kind of facilities and space that we can show that collection. The work that you do is not made possible just by a single benefactor, but just, just run through them for us. Sure. So Dr. Chow gave us $15 million which was closely followed by the Ian Potter Foundation of $5 million, Penelope Seidler gave three quarters of a million dollars, and then and the Nelson Mears Foundation provided $1 million. And so that was enough. That, that $22.5 million was enough to really generate the confidence from the university to support the Chow Chat Wing Museum with another $40 million. And as anyone in the business will tell you, it's not just about having a huge warehouse space in order to be able to hang and present artifacts. I mean, the architecture as well in your museum, it's, it's grand in a, in a way, not minimalist, but beautifully finished as well. Yeah, we were very fortunate. Um, JPW Architects, um, they had come already from a background with heritage buildings and with cultural institutions, including the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra. And, um, but we also had um, FDC Builders and the team they assigned to us with Branko and Chris and Matt really very quickly got the difference between a public institution suitable for a splendid collection as opposed to an office block. And so I think between the architects and the builders, um, we came with we came out with a fantastic building. And then in the development of the exhibitions, we decided to use four different designers. So four different designs throughout the four floors of exhibition space have given us theatrical spaces, serene spaces, all kinds of different tempos, which I think is part of the success of the institution. It really is um, it's a wonderful place to visit, off to its best advantage. And that's the wonderful thing too, Paul. But I just wonder, thinking philosophically as well, and the question here that I've got in front of me is to do with how having such a museum assists with learning. But it, in, in general, what, what do we learn from having collections like this, not necessarily the collection that the university holds, but in general and from your experience, what do we learn from having artworks available to us in, in this sense? Examining objects close up, looking at objects gives you the ability to look at things from totally different perspectives. People bring all kinds of different um, experiences with a single object. So for the, in the first instance, that interdisciplinary nature of which is increasingly part of our world, objects really help us deal with, with, with both seeing different perspectives and, and also exploring those different perspectives. I think um, it's, it's well known in terms of what we know, what we call as object-based learning, is that we use different parts of our brain. And it's been demonstrated that students retain a lot more because, they're, because of those multiple, they're not just listening or they're not just reading, they're using all different kinds of senses, including touch and smell and, and sight, of course. So it's, um, it's, it's a different way of engaging with the world. And for, for a lot of students, and I know for me as an archaeologist, 
the physical connection that those objects give you to people and places and events is, is a very powerful thing. Mm. Do we learn from the past in terms of not making similar mistakes again? Do you, do you see that when you're perhaps in the past, when you've been on a dig? Do you think, well, this is when perhaps humankind learned that this was not the way to do something. This is not the direction to go in. And is, is that sometimes reflected in perhaps pieces of art that you have there? I think we should learn more from looking at objects in that way. Um, when you're dealing with deep time, you could, I think you're more aware of how little we've changed. I mean, one of my favourite things that I show people in the Chajakwin Museum is a, a mortar and pestle, a basalt mortar and pestle from the Wadi Hummer excavations from the University of Sydney. And, um, and it's 13,000 years old, and yet, staggeringly, it's exactly what you would find on your kitchen bench with perhaps the remains of some basil in the bottom. Mm. So um, I think that when you consider how little we've changed and how those, um, the concerns of life, if you peel away all the modern conveniences, in the end, we want, we want to feed and we want, to, we want safety for our families and, and a healthy life. And, and what struck me in, through looking at collections and also being a, an archaeologist is, in the end, how little we have changed. How different is perhaps the public's experience with what the museum offers? How does that differ to what students may enjoy by being able to engage with the museum? I guess I'm asking, as a member of the public, if I go to the museum, what sort of experience can, can I expect? And what would you, as a, as a director at the museum, would hope that I would take away with me? Part of the whole raison d'etre of, of building a new museum was to give us, give us that kind of critical mass that enabled us to be open. That's a major difference to what we've had before when we've, we've been three smaller institutions, frequently they're hard to find, um, they were hard to find. That, that's no longer our position. And so part of, um, we had private, you know, a great deal of private philanthropy, but also the university itself stumped up $40 million towards this project. And, and part of their expectations, in addition to contributing in, to, the, to teaching and learning and embedding collections in a more accessible um, and relevant way to teaching, was to be a more friendly, public-facing gateway to mm. the university. Many people have had no reason to come on campus, which is a pretty large slice of, the, of Glebe, Newtown kind of area, mm. and, unless they, were, they worked here or were students or had some other business. But um, for a great deal of our local community and for a broader general public, there was no reason to come to the university. We now have a much, you know, we have a, we have a real reason to come to the university. And the museum was devised in a way that the exhibitions really are for a general audience. I mean, even if, say, if you're an archaeology student or if you're a bio, biology student or a fine arts student, you will have, you know, you will have some classes which are very much in your area of, of interest. You will also, um, know quite a bit about those areas but for the rest of the collection and the rest of the the exhibitions you're still general audience mm. you know so our 2,000 square meters of gallery space uh whilst they're very informative they're also very accessible in the way that you would expect of a public museum we have a lot of industry professionals who listen to the podcast and i just wonder if i can talk to you about change management a little bit when you talked about the three original uh, galleries and museums which uh, the, the collections are drawn from. Did, did you have any challenges in terms of pulling those three different entities together and then putting them all under a single roof? In terms of managing human resources as well and past philosophies in how these collections mm -hmm. were held? 
Um, in 2003, the three very separate institutions were brought under an umbrella kind of administrative organization headed by David Ellis, the director. And so he introduced other roles such as collection manager and conservator to work across all those collections. So it, it, that, was, that was a way of professionalizing the institutions, bringing in new expertise, but, um, but it also really informed future plans in which we find ourselves now in having a new museum. It was, it was clearly demonstrated, but in the end, that was the, the great way to go. Inevitably, um, having been independent, there's a lot of, I mean, our curators are experts in their fields. They're very passionate about their areas. There's inevitable advocacy for representation of your collections. I've been in that position myself as a curator in the past. Um, and so as deputy director, looking across all the curators and the collections, it was my role to to try and manage that, to make sure that we got the best kinds of um, outcomes for our audience in the main, so that we weren't hiding some of our uh, big points of difference, such as the Egyptian collections, for example, which are the largest and best in Australia. Um, you know, there were, there were clear parts of the collections which had to have a very good showing. Um, and so in the end, we, we whittled down um, 60 ideas in our design briefs when I came to 17 exhibitions. And that doesn't mean that all the rest have gone to waste. It just means that we have, we already have been working on a forward schedule. There's lots of opportunities to explore different parts of the collections in different ways. But how do you get them now to all speak to each other? I think there was a lot of expectations that when people would come to the new museum, we'd have this jumble of, of, um, of artifacts and art with each other. But um, I think that what people will find is we have exhibitions that are clearly from their original constituent museums, but arranged, but in different arrangements. So we haven't got each museum per floor. There's a lot more mixture than that. But in terms of their exhibitions, there's varying degrees of blending depending on the positive outcomes for the audience and for the interpretation of that material. And so the, um, the most blended of all is the introductory show, which I curated, Object Art Specimen which is um, a celebration of the bringing together of those three museums for those people who didn't know what the origins were, um, but also a demonstration of the kind of conversations that we can get going, surprising kinds of juxtapositions um, between disparate material. And so um, part of that involves having four of our lovely red cedar maclay cases mounted on plinths, so they're both objects in their own right, but also receptacles for objects. And, and um, six themes which go from sex, love and death right the way through to chaos, pattern and order. And, um, and I think that um, when people have a look at that exhibition, I think they'll get, a, they'll be, it's like a veneer of the kinds of conversations and the kinds of outcomes that we can get in the future. In order to pick out the objects to use and the direction in which to go, Paul, I, I'm wondering how do you approach that? Do you look at every object that's at your disposal and see how that formulates a pattern in your mind? Or do you take a single object and then see if you can actually draw other stories from that using other objects that may be in the collection. I think cur curatorially people generally start with a theme, and, um, and so there'll be a, a particular issue. Frequently it will be, you know, it has to have some strength in your collection or else you know where to borrow other material from, from neighbouring and, and further afield institutions. Um, in the case of the introductory show, um, that was a lot more complex as whilst I come from an archaeological background, I didn't have anywhere near the same amount of, of knowledge about the art collections and the natural history and science. And so we had a lot of brainstorming with the curators about if we were to deal with these particular themes, 
what kinds of objects would they suggest would, um, would be um, suitable for those things. And frequently it was the left of field, more surprising kinds of objects that, that are, in, are in object art specimen in the introductory show, mm. just to, to be a bit more playful. And um, one of my, you know, a little vignette is um, Eclectus parrots. So there's, there are 15 dead parrots. They're not sleeping. Sadly, they are dead and they've been dead for 130 years. And, um, and they show a very unusual um, major sexual dimorphism for that kind of, of um, species. And um, so, so strong was this that naturalists were of the opinion that these were separate species, that the males and the females were separate species for into the 20th century. And, um, and so that this is a, in, within the theme of sex, love and death. This is a, a commentary about gender stereotyping. And it could possibly be the first time that parrots have been used in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and certainly is coming from left field, no doubt about it. <laughs> I asked this question pretty much of, of every curator after they put a show together. Has it met your expectations or are you always left with that gnawing feeling of, gee, I, I just really I wish I could have closed this off with one other piece or, or one other direction? How settled are you in your mind, even just talking about the introductory show, Object art specimens. Yeah. How, are you are you satisfied? Are you at peace with yourself with how that came together? I think there's always the ones that got away, and, and occasionally I come upon an object and think, "Oh wow, that would have been really good in that particular case." But we did have a lot more objects in there, and as, as is typical of the kind of process of curating a show, you you fill it up with lots of things, and then you start paring back. Mm. And um, but there were some. Yeah, there have been some items which. I think that would have been a really nice thing to include. But going back to the educational aspect of this, and universities over over time, at times, have been great provocateurs of social thinking. Do you think, and do you have items in your collection which perhaps the public may find quite provocative, or do you have plans for for perhaps controversial, more controversial exhibitions coming up? I think within, I think that's one of the great advantages of being a university institution is that we. We do have a lot more autonomy to deal with with more controversial kind of issues. Um, I can't think of anything immediately at the moment. I mean, the the, the presentation of human remains in the Egyptian gallery, for example, mm. um, has to be dealt with very carefully. And we you know, we have mediated through um, indigenous our indigenous audiences and through Sydney Metro to make sure that we had the, the proper kind of protocols for showing human remains, um, but. I think that in the future, we certainly won't be shying away from the kinds of conversations that, that could be difficult for other more mainstream institutions. Mm. Could I ask you, and this is not a, a provocative question coming off the back of that, but and, and it's not necessarily a question that I'll ask of art galleries so much, but in terms of the, the long-term ethics and thinking changes over time, Paul, I understand that, but in acquiring artifacts that perhaps have traditional or indigenous significance, acquiring those and then putting them on display, how do you weigh that up in your mind? And what's the, the general thinking within the educational museum business, if there's such a thing at the moment, of actually holding on to yeah. such artifacts and displaying them? How do you approach that in your own head? Australia, around the world, there's a lot of soul searching in terms of those, those kinds of approaches. And I think that in Australia, where New Zealand as well, there's we're certainly approaching best practice, and we consider ourselves to be custodians of that kind of material. And all of our Indigenous displays have been done through our Indigenous curator and other curators with, with communities. 
And so in the formation, for example, of our East Arnhem Land Jalkri exhibition, um, we brought down six elders um, two and a half years ago from Yongu for a week to talk to our designers mm. and our curators about how they wanted their material to be presented in the way that they felt most comfortable represented them. And so that's why the title is Welcome to the Yongu Foundations. And so they consider this material to be equivalent to our university kind of texts. They are brimful of, of symbolism and, um, and personal stories. And, um, and so you know, through that kind of, of community liaison, I think that it makes the presentation of those things a far more ethical mm. um, outcome. We have our ambassadors display too, which consists of eight showcases dotted around the, the four floors of displays, which represent, they present objects from our collections, indigenous collections, um, representing different communities across Australia. And all of those have been done with those, with those representative communities and the indigenous voice is given primacy. In the Jalkri exhibition, the indigenous voice is in, in red text, which is a larger font than our, than our curators. Yes, no doubt about the level of respect which you're showing for such things. I, I, I just recall, actually, while you're answering that, that question, uh, I think there was a, a museum in the US that returned quite a number of artefacts to Papua New Guinea, if I'm right. Are you familiar with that story? Yes, lots of repatriation. And we, Sydney University has been at the forefront of repatriation of material and notably human remains since the 1990s. Right. And before there was actually federal government assistance and that kind of thing, we really were at the forefront of that. And, um, and if, there was, you know, if we have objects in our stores which are considered, you know, we, they're stored as, as keeping places, um, we, we separate material that's for female eyes or for male eyes Mm. separate from each other and and mediate who can see those items we have total open access for those communities um if there was any real discussion about wanting things returned to um to a community then we would be more than happy to discuss those kinds of things yeah that's great news and great to hear and of course not not unexpected at all Paul to hear that from no. you you no. you made mention earlier on about a number of benefactors over your entire career have you been surprised at the level of generosity, I mean substantial generosity, that benefactors have offered when it comes to things like your archaeological work, your digs, with the building of something like the facility that you're in at the moment? Is it still staggering to you, the amount of money that people are prepared to put towards such an institution? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, given that this is my chosen profession, which I've been in for over 30 years now, I also am very gratified that people give us that, that kind of confidence and, and, um, and recognition that they also consider the, the keeping of material and this kind of collective memory and, and the connections these objects give to us, um, that they also consider this to be an important profession and, and, um, and venue for, for audiences around the world. And so we're, of course, very grateful to people for recognising that. Yeah. And as a recipient of that sort of funding, do you feel sometimes over-obliged to perhaps deliver on a product when you, when you receive such funding? Not necessarily in the position you're in now, but over time, mm. if I can just draw on, on your years of experience, as you mentioned, yeah. how, does, how do you mm -hmm. work that as an individual, as a professional in your trade when, mm. when perhaps a, a result is expected and the pressure is on, maybe sometimes you can't deliver it? 
I think there's a common misconception about sponsorship and and um, donations. So all the donations that are given to us come with no strings attached. There's no expectation of any input into what we display or how we display it and the messaging that we give. And we wouldn't take the money if that was the case. Mm. It's really important for institutions to be independent in the way that they present their collections. And, I mean, museums are a trusted source of information for the public. That's why we exist and that's why people come to see us. We can't confuse people in terms of how we present things. So sponsorship, on the other hand, can come with different kinds of expectations. And the University of Sydney Museums has never had any sponsorship. This is all free donations given by generous benefactors. Yeah, very good. Very generous indeed. Just talking about you a bit, though, Paul, while I have you here, I mean, you've, you've got a remarkable history, something like 27 years you're working at the Powerhouse Museum. You know, you don't just push the pens. You've, you've worked in the field. You've got the, the Indiana Jones-type experience, if I can bring it down to that level. Now you're working in the museum. How, how have you been able to switch? Has this just been an evolution for you to be able to work from field work to the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences and then moving in to this museum at the University of Sydney. How have you been able to kind of move through this cultural change in your life and your career? I've never, I've always done both at the same time. And I'm really thrilled to say that I've been going to Jordan since the, the late 1980s. And I've been digging in Greece since 2012. Thanks to the generosity of the places in which I've worked, there's been a lot of respect for keeping up your original passions is, is, you know, which is why I work in museums in the first place. There, of course, is a great deal of integration between the two. A lot of archaeologists or people who've been trained as archaeologists have ended up working in all kinds of areas of the museum. And I'm very fond of telling people that our one-time space technology curator, the powerhouse's space technology curator, Kerry Doherty, was an archaeology student as well. <laughs> um, in the end, it's, it's, it's a way of learning about how to interpret material culture and, and it can be applied in lots of different ways. So um, I, I should be coming back from Jordan right now. It should have been Jordan the last couple of months. But and that's, the, that's the COVID casualty. Oh, do you have any trips planned? I mean, I guess that one is just being held off and held off and held off until you, until you can fly again. Yes, that's right. Mm. And so um, on the Zagarar excavations on Andros, we're, um, we're going through the motions of, um, of applying for a linkage grant. So there's always lots to do at home when you're not, when you're not on on site. Yeah. And just going back to that 27 years with the Powerhouse Museum, were you, I mean, this is a great opportunity that, that you were presented with to work here and going through the application process. I know it's, it's tough. It's tough. But mm. were you torn at that moment when you thought, oh, perhaps I should apply for this job and leave the work that I've been doing at the Powerhouse for so long? I mean, how did you manage that mentally? But the Powerhouse, I think curators is one of those positions where you just get better and better at your job. You, you, let, you get to know the collections more. You get to recognize interesting and surprising connections across different collections. I had no intention really of leaving the powerhouse until this great opportunity mm. came. And it, was, it suddenly seemed like a really appropriate le left turn. Um, it, I had been doing my PhD when I was at the powerhouse, but it was in Near Eastern, it was in Jordanian ancient ceramics from 1550 to 1450 BC. Um, it seemed to just recalibrate things in, in a way that was, um, was irresistible, really. And I've, and I've had a fantastic five years at the university. As I said in the introduction, Paul, I, I had some uh, email correspondence from a number of listeners who said, you know, it's about time you did 
a conversation about this great new museum at the University of Sydney. And it's been a remarkable 30 minutes or so that we've had to talk about this so far. And I really appreciate your time on the podcast. Great pleasure, Tim. Thank you for having me. Dr. Paul Donnelly there, Deputy Director of the Chow Chat Wing Museum at Sydney University. You can learn more about the exhibitions, search the collections and find resources to plan a visit when you get the chance at www.sydney.edu.au forward slash museum. That's sydney.edu.au forward slash museum. Or just head to our website, www.insidethegallery.com.au and follow the links. You'll also find links there to a transcription of the podcast made possible for our hearing-impaired fans by the generosity of Pixel Perfect ProLab. And there are links there too to our Facebook and Instagram pages, also to our mailing list. All of that you'll find at www.insidethegallery.com.au. Until then, follow the public orders, of course, as they relate to COVID as locally advised and support the arts as much as you can within those restrictions. I'm Tim Stackpole. Thanks for your ongoing interest in the podcast. And until the next edition, bye-bye for now.